0: Hello everybody and welcome to the Ryan Painter Podcast. Today we sit down with BC United MLA for Surrey South Eleanor Circo. We talk with Eleanor about what it's like being an MLA, her time as a Royal Canadian Mounted Police Officer spokesperson, her transition into the role of MLA, and how she views the similarities between her work as an RCMP officer and an MLA representing her constituents in the BC Legislative Assembly. Hey everyone, thank you so much for joining this episode. It is episode 7 of the Ryan Painter Podcast. And I'm recording this on New Year's Eve on the 31st of December as we close out 2023 and go into 2024. And I'm I'm feeling pretty reflective. Um, you know, if you've been listening to the podcast, a lot of the monologues that I do... In advance to introducing the guests that we have on the show, probably for the last six episodes, have sounded a, l- a little bit cynical, to some extent, and I think that's really borne out. It's borne out in a lot. I think you know, for much of the last twenty years, I've been, uh, I've, 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 I was very much a, in, deeply embedded. in in politics, in BC, in Canada, and locally too. And so much so that I lived and breathed it every single moment. And things that happened in the political world affected me quite deeply because I was so intimately involved in it. And now, you know, we're we're coming up on uh, exactly one year to the date tomorrow that I officially... Kind of left not only that world of politics behind, but but left twenty plus years of relationships and networks and friendships behind. And you say, well Ryan, why leave friendships behind? What <laughs> it wasn't my choice, believe me. Unfortunately in the political world, uh you're you're often seen as disloyal if you leave a group that you've that you've been with especially one that you've been with for as long as I have and I don't know I'm thinking a lot about it and I'm happy that that's not my life anymore like in 2023 I really fashioned a new sense of purpose a sense of myself a sense of what i wanted a sense of belonging a sense of my place in the world but i really developed i think a much more fulsome appreciation for what i wanted you see the thing is when you're in politics for so long and look this isn't by the way to discourage people from getting into politics just do it with your eyes wide open i think is the only thing i really want to um want to really specify, you know, politics is so much about transactions, especially these days and you go into politics and you really want to, you want to, you want to do well, you want to change things. There's a specific cause that you're really pushing for. And, and that's great. You know, it really is. And I'm not saying that in a patronizing way. It is, you know, you go, I got into politics at a young young age. I did because of the, um, Northern gateway pipeline and the environment. And what I saw was a real urgent need for government to start addressing climate change and climate related issues. And I think my time in politics and what I, what I saw, especially as deeply involved as I got, you begin to really understand not only the transactional nature of the work, but how clicky it is inside politics the groups that control things that manage relationships manage outcomes within political operations and political parties are very tight they don't trust and they don't bring people in um and that's you know maybe for for good reason for them the 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 trust level that someone might come in and blow up the whole entire thing is maybe too much to risk. But I certainly found in my time that, you know, I got into politics largely because I was looking for a place to belong. Uh, When I was 16, you know, in that, that age, when you're in high school, you're still trying to figure a lot of stuff out. I was really dealing with a lot of anger issues at the time. I hadn't really come to, the place where I discovered the, the depth of my mental health challenges, and my depression and my anxiety, which would eventually move into a, a suicidality. But when I joined, it was really seeking companionship with friends and seeking a place to belong. And I gotta tell you, if that's what you're looking for in politics, try something first, like find yourself outside of politics before you try to find yourself inside of politics. Because trying to find yourself inside politics is a very self-defeating adventure because you will only give and give and give. You will receive very little. You will find out almost nothing about yourself and you will waste a whole lot of time giving to people everything that they need and getting virtually nothing in return. And you'll come out of it kind of wondering what the fuck have I been doing? (laughs) So, you know, Again, I I don't want to sound cynical. I know a lot of these monologues, I, I can maybe sometimes sound a little bit cynical. And that's why I wanted to really focus on this one, what I'm looking forward to in 2024. And look, I've I've developed some amazing friendships and relationships in the last year outside of the political world. And I'm so grateful for that. The other thing I'm really excited for is is the, the consulting business that I've started and really focusing in on leadership and governance and helping organizations really refine and hone and shape their governance practices so that these organizations can be focused and can really execute on the Goals of their organizations, whether corporate or nonprofit. You know, along with all the time that I spent in politics, I've worked as a volunteer in more nonprofit organizations that I can count. And I've gained an incredible amount of experience. And I really felt this year a deep connection with the desire to help people navigate the challenges they have in a boardroom navigate challenges they have leading an organization and navigate the opportunities that exist and that show up so that they can not only move their own potential as a leader forward, but they can move their organizations forward. I think it's a super exciting opportunity. The possibilities within that I see to offer my expertise, my ability to really suss out where, the blockages are for people who are trying to navigate what are really challenging waters sometimes for organizations and where they're trying to go and what they're trying to get to. I just find it fascinating. I have a really good keen sense of where people need to go and where individuals struggle in terms of managing groups of people, helping folks understand what is their own unique leadership style, helping folks appreciate how do you deal with difficult folks around the table and part of dealing with difficult people around the table is first understanding yourself and why that person's difficulty means dealing with your own set of difficulties first and look the other amazing thing that happened for me in 2023 was finally after all of these years really committing to counseling and therapy for the first i think maybe eight to ten months of the year i went to counseling every week every two weeks with this awesome awesome counselor and it was all virtual and the breakthroughs that i had with her were unlike anything i've ever experienced in my life in terms of real solid breakthroughs finally coming to terms with the fact that i tried to take my own life so many years ago, realizing that I had never really uh, approached the self that was dealing with that, that I've talked about it a lot, but I've talked about it a lot from an external perspective, almost as if it's what happened to someone else. Like I was watching a story play out on TV or reading it in a book as if this is something that somebody else experienced and what, my counselor helped me do was actually get inside go to who that person was that that ryan at that time all those years ago and be there experience it feel it understand it and then engage with it and work through the challenging emotions that took me to that part and then realize how far i've come outside of it i have never had such a good cry as i think it i think it maybe didn't come until the third or fourth month of working with my counselor i don't think i've had such a good cry ever and it was um it was so good the release was something that uh, unless you've experienced it it'll be really hard to articulate and that is the single best thing that has happened for me this year because through all of that i've become able to really fully understand not only my own value but that i am enough exactly as i am but also i have value to deliver into this world the value to provide To people not only through this podcast and hopefully we're doing that but through helping boards of governance ceos leaders board chairs whoever else it might be in leadership positions really understand really get to the roots of what it is to be a good powerful leader i'm so excited that 2024 is going to give me a real opportunity to dive into that work in a really big fulsome way in this podcast over the next year is going to shift to really focus much more keenly on leadership and what it is that thing, and it might seem small, but that thing that drives people to lead. And to want to change and to want to do things and where their obstacles are where their challenges are and how they overcame them and what lessons we can all learn from that we can all learn something from what anybody has been through i don't care where you are i don't care what stage in life you're at Everybody can learn something from somebody else's challenges and the steps they took to overcome those challenges. We're always learning, all of us. And so I'm really jazzed. I don't know if you can tell, but I'm really jazzed. I'm really excited for what it means. I've got an amazing guest already lined up for the first week of January. I've got a podcast in the can that I'm going to release that week. And I'm just really amped for what's coming in 2024, not just for this podcast, not just for my business, but for the connections that I know I'm going to be making with you and so many other people. I'm really feeling like I'm ready to deliver some major goodness (laughs) into the world. And I'm just, I'm excited. I'm excited. And I hope you are too. You know, I know that moving into new years can feel significant for folks because there's that year change and that shift where people feel like okay here we go we're gonna start really strong 2024 out the gate it's gonna be amazing but but every day can be that day for you every day is a chance to improve on something that might not have worked the day before you know (laughs) i'm not perfect i definitely got up late today um planning to get up meditate journal pray spend some time with god and do the things that i do to get myself set for the day uh, did i get up in time to do it this morning i, I didn't and, and that's okay tomorrow's another chance to do it and i i think for me the big thing coming into the into 2024 i've talked about it before is is not just consistency But it's gentleness, gentleness, gentleness with myself, gentleness with others in the outside world. And um, being okay with not being perfect and not getting it right. Nobody ever got to a place in their life where they had it all figured out. And I don't even know if anyone really feels that they've got it all figured out because we're all human beings, we're all flawed in some very specific way. But those folks who have gotten to a point where maybe we see that they've got it all figured out, they didn't get there without making some mistakes and tripping up. And even maybe falling back a few times, you know, two steps forward, one steps back is, is still one step forward, right? So I, I'm, I'm just, uh, apart from rambling, I'm just really trying to articulate how thrilled I am that you're here with me Moving through this process, as I communicate to you the plans for 2024, and as we bring on new, exciting, wonderful, awesome guests, revisit some previous guests that we've had from the last couple months, and look to what's going to be, I think, a, a great year um, for a lot of things. I really hope that you know we can look to the situation in the Middle East this year and and hopefully see it wrap up. We absolutely need we need peace there. Uh, peace first means Hamas putting their arms down, and I hope we can get that get that place to you know Hamas puts down their arms, releases all their hostages, surrenders, and hopefully some peace can come in the region. You know, I, is that going to happen this year? I don't know, but I I just I enter today and I enter tomorrow and I enter twenty twenty four feeling. So full of hope and enthusiasm and excitement, and that will change too. I mean, there are going to be days, and and you you'll know this. There are days that you get up and you feel really inspired, and then there are days you get up and you just feel like you can't even get out of bed. Heck, that may that switch that transition may slide in the same day. You might get up feeling really jazzed, and by noon you might just feel like shit and just want to go to bed. The key is. I think to know that you are exactly enough right now as you need to be. But if you want to change, you have that opportunity every single day. If you want to do something different, you have that opportunity every single day. If you want to set on a new path and take a new direction, you have that opportunity every single day to do that. And... 2024 is going to be the year I'm going to do some awesome stuff and I can't wait so let's dive in to today's interview with BC United MLA for Surrey South Eleanor Sterko MLA Sterko thank you so much for joining us today I'm really really excited that you're here
1: thank you for having me on
0: Well, and it's a particular treat for me because you're actually the first elected politician on my podcast, so I'm especially uh, high vibe right now.
1: (laughs) Okay, good. Well, I feel honored to be the first. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Um, I wanted to, I mean, just just start. We're going into the holiday season. You you you're 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 elected. Do do you find that you get much downtime in the holidays, or are you still very much kind of plugged in and doing your your MLA? Um, uh, spokesperson stuff? Or are you able to kind of get some downtime and do family stuff?
1: Well, I try to do as much family stuff as I can. But you know, the truth is, it's just sort of like when I was in policing, certain jobs never stop. They're sort of like a 24 hour a day, seven days a week, even on Christmas kind of thing. You know, like, um, a lot of people don't know a lot about the constituency work that we do. Mm -hmm. They see us uh, elected officials in the legislature, or maybe on the news, but A lot of the important stuff that we do is actually in our office. So I have, excuse me, I have a crew of people that work in there who are awesome. Mm -hmm. And so someone, for example, maybe they received um, a really terrible cancer diagnosis, but they're super far down on a treatment list and their doctor is asking for us to help um, expedite uh, some services for them, maybe to get them to be able to go to the States or or even Mm -hmm. get them higher up on the health authority list. So that can happen anytime, even when you're on vacation. So, yeah. you know, I I'm always working, but but there's a difference. Like, you know, for so for today, I got my gym clothes under here after this <laughs> interview. Um, you know, I've made some time for myself to go and, and have some personal time and I've purposefully booked off blocks of time for activities with my family. Um, and then things that are more, you know, kind of urgent or like, you know, you don't want to make someone wait you know who's about either to lose their housing or they really need urgent health care and they need my help. I'm not going to tell them I'm on vacation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I want to help them. And that's you know the whole thing why I got into this gig is because I like helping people. So, so it doesn't really feel like work. You know, it's so rewarding that um it's just like this existence. You know, it's a way of being and um it's fun. It can be tiring, but you know, the the payback in terms of know the knowledge that I've actually helped someone um is is worth
0: it 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 is so worth it i i used to be a constituency assistant um uh for for three years here in victoria from oh gosh i think it was 2013 till 2016 and uh I, i really at the time didn't really understand what what happened in mla offices and the amount of work that is done uh behind the scenes with uh you know helping constituents who come in with various and sundry issues and and how a lot of times that constituency staff really kind of do act as that that um i mean they're they're there at the front line but in many ways they're, the ones. they're, they're also they're kind the of ones. A last resort at the same time too in some ways like people i always used to say people don't come to mla offices for help unless they've exhausted every other option
1: you yeah, know that's true and i think too we receive a lot of requests from people that are really vulnerable like they don't have a lot of other People out there helping them, you know, we've actually mm-hmm. had contacts with, you know, people will refer us like an elderly neighbor or someone that they know is sort of um, you know, not receiving. For example, we had a person that wasn't getting any of their provincial or federal benefits Ugh. and eating at a food bank. And part of it was is because they weren't able to get their driver's license because they had some, you know, just they couldn't leave their house. They had trouble like mm-hmm. getting on a bus, you know, a little bit of mental health issues. So it's like here's a person without the MLA's office that would be like completely stuck. Yeah. And you start to realize actually it's, I always felt lucky, you know, when I would go to people's homes and I was a police officer and I'd see like how other people are living and, you know, the struggles that other people have and you feel really grateful for what you have personally. And and even more so when I'm working um, as the MLA and with my constituency staff and we see some of the circumstances that people are trying their best to navigate and sometimes really coming up against that sort of brick wall of bureaucracy and Mm -hmm. just you know it's actually really really a shame that we don't do more to promote the things that happen in the offices it's not as exciting and wild as the stuff you see sometimes on the news but the bulk of the like good work that's being done by MLAs I would say is a lot of it is in the constituency offices because you Mm -hmm. know some of the things that people are dealing with um, that they may have not been able to get through without the constituency assistance honestly is (laughs) It's pretty wild.
0: They're they're the unsung heroes. They 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 really they are. They are
1: people don't know. They, they really see their are. MLA, but they don't know there's this like amazing team of superheroes <laughs> actually in the office doing all the, the work to try to help people um on my behalf and on behalf of the other MLAs and uh, it's pretty incredible work actually.
0: Well, it's a good reminder for folks who who um you know might might be listening who you know need a little bit of help if you're if you haven't ever gone to your mla's office and it's a provincial issue <laughs> but sometimes you know those provincial issues and federal issues and jurisdictional stuff can can cross different lines but you know go to your mla's office and see if they're i mean the the, the interesting thing about mla's offices is they also have all kinds of pamphlets and information and there's all kinds of stuff um mla's offices you'll, you'll well know they have a a a grant search uh Option that you can use, um, where you can go into your your constituency office and actually do like a grant search and, and find grants for nonprofits and stuff. So, there's all kinds of things that these amazing heroes do.
1: <laughs> it's true, honestly. Like, um, I'm so grateful to have such a good staff, too. Like, mm. um, Sam, one of my CAs, she's worked in other offices before, so she and even for federal mm. MPs. And so she knows like so many of the programs. So even if it is sometimes a federal thing, she knows right. where to at least refer people and and try yeah. to guide them in the right direction. Yeah. Or sometimes we just give them the links to the forms they need yeah. instead of making them contact someone else. We're like, oh, we will just just help this person the best that we can. Totally. Um, they're not because you know by the time they come to us, they've probably already received a huge runaround. Yeah, <laughs> so, so and, true. And even you know we're supposed to only help people within our constituency, but depending on what it is they need help with, sometimes the help, like, for example, mental health and addictions, mm. they may not live in my writing, but they may need help with something that actually specifically fits within my critic role. And so we actually help a lot of people with outside of the writing as well. Mm. Um, but, you know, my other constituency assistant, I actually have two others that both work part-time. Uh, one of them is a retired social worker.
0: Oh my! And, well, you. Oh, yeah, lucky. she is a you gem. <laughs> I know. Wow. I, I honestly
1: super lucked out on um. <laughs> like honestly, I have like a gold mine of amazing stuff, and so I mean, between them and then um, the other one that works for me, Denise, she's incredible. She's got so much lived experience. Um, you know, dealing with um, you know the uh, addictions and mental health uh, realm. That when I brought her on, I was like, you know what, you can just. She advises me so well.
2: Mm.
1: You know, and trying to navigate provincial services, actually related mm-hmm. to my, um, you know, for her family members, extended family. So I mean, it's uh, it's been such a good help, and I can't believe how lucky I am to have this great team. Actually,
0: so you've got Sam, Denise, and. Gail. Gail, Gail. Well, Sam, Denise, Gail, if you're listening, you rock. <laughs> well, I'll
1: force them to listen. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, I wanted to, I wanted to, uh, you, you brought up your critic portfolio and I want to talk about that, but just before jumping into that, I wanted to ask, because before coming into this role, you were the um you you had been an rcmp officer for 13 15 years something like that 13. yeah just 13. over
1: 13 years yeah
0: and you were the the chief spokesperson for the rcmp in bc or was it western Canada? In Surrey,
1: no no in surrey so in surrey. i was so i've done media relations for the rcmp actually since i was posted to the northwest territories oh wow while also regular member, so meaning i still did investigations and stuff um And then I was working actually in Ottawa and I saw an opportunity to come to Surrey, which I always wanted to do. Mm. Um, And it was a job for, at the time, it was a corporal for media relations. And the reason why I really wanted to go to Surrey was because like everyone always says, what's your favorite place you've ever lived? I live in a lot of places. And every time, (laughs) the answer is always the place that I'm living. (laughs) Um, and And I don't think it's, you know, it is actually true that every place I've ever lived or been has been my favorite at that time because there's always something to really like about the community. Mm -hmm. But often you hear about the bad stuff when it comes to like media relations, especially if we're talking about the police. Mm -hmm. And I really saw coming to Surrey as an opportunity to try to, you know, I had seen what the crime stats were. They weren't that bad. But the reputation of Surrey at the time as being this like crime haven, Mm -hmm. you know, like well, how do we change? Like, obviously it's the stats don't reflect what the perception is you know and so I really wanted to go there to see if I could help in terms of people's perception and because I want people to feel safe you know it's not necessarily because you're just trying to um make the RCP shine but truly like you know it's it's concerning if people live in a community and they think it's unsafe but the reality being that actually you're very safe mm-hmm. and <laughs> compared to other BC cities for example Surrey is like among the safest and mm-hmm. so um I went there for that and you know being a police officer and and working in communications obviously I felt that helped me because I you know don't get nervous in front of cameras and I've had to speak to some pretty challenging subjects and um, but it's been good and I've I loved my policing job and being an MLA is kind of like that a little bit you know Mm -hmm. you get to help people and uh, not everybody is gonna like you (laughs) so
0: (laughs) welcome to life though people don't always like you in life period so that's just I mean it's 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 on steroids as an elected official. <laughs> um, I I wonder, did you come to um, your work as a as a police officer first, or were, was it the communications and PR that went first?
1: Well, actually, I have kind of a weird career path because I actually started working at CFJC Television in Calloops oh. when I was like after high school, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then from there I spent like fourteen years working in the media. Uh, not ever on TV or anything like that. They told me I had a face for radio. So I.
0: (laughs) That's that's such a horrible (laughs) thing to say. I've heard that before, but it's just terrible.
2: Uh,
1: But no, I worked in technical. I worked in technical Mm. stuff and I really enjoyed it. I worked as part of like the news team. And then after that, you know, around that time, and I have to say it was like the mid 2000s, like more than, well, obviously more than 15 years ago. I guess twenty years ago now, I started to see that shift between information and infotainment. I like to call mm-hmm. it. So mm-hmm. when we went away from in the news, it used to be sort of like more long term stories. So you'd mm-hmm. have like a five minute item, like a five minute news pack, and it would have multiple voices and almost be like a small documentary. Right. Until all of a sudden, we forego all those types of, you know, news coverage, and we're bringing in more and more of these kind of like satellite debris kind of thing so getting mm-hmm. rid of you opportunity to have multiple voices and very objective news coverage to bringing in weird clips that are like clickbait I kind know of. right um, that was just my opinion I'm not trying to say news is terrible I have I love journalism and I have a great respect and, and in fact I think it's an essential part of democracy but I didn't feel the personal satisfaction anymore sure. know that's that's all it was and so i was like i had always as a kid wanted to be like a a soldier or a police officer because i have like family connections in both those realms so i left my job i was a tv news like director like doing technical um for cbc north doing northbeat in igalak which northbeat is um, english and dene and the other one is inuktitut language news Huh. and i left it and joined as a reservist to the canadian armed forces and then worked quit the cbc where i was working and worked full time as a reservist so class b reservist working full time on contract up north in the northwest territories and doing like logistics and clerical work because the military marches to the beat of paperwork people don't yep. know that <laughs> it's yep. a true story and <laughs> um and then from there i joined the rcp so i would say like my and I would never intended to do media relations for the RCMP is one of these things were in a way I was kind of Um, because they <laughs> knew I had experience. And at the time the Northwest Territories RCMP needed a hand with, um, you know, with communications and making sure that the public trust could be built up a little bit higher than it had been. And, um, and so I was asked to do that. Mm-hmm. And, and I enjoyed it. And, you know, like I, found my knack a little bit, you know, because I could combine things that I loved. I loved policing, and I also loved being able to help inform the public. Like, that was the part of the being in TV news stuff that I did like, mm-hmm. um, was being able to be this conduit of information that people could know and trust and, and all that kind of stuff. So, yes, yeah, so I loved it. And then, you know, I guess sort of it went from there.
0: Yeah, well, and now here you are, uh, uh, MLA representing the place that you most recently found yourself working as, as, as an RCMP member. Uh, and uh, it, it's, it's funny where things, where things take you. I I had actually, my, um, my stepdad was an auxiliary RCMP officer um, oh, nice. uh, when they ran their auxiliary program. And he, uh, he had actually won an award. He still has the crystal plaque, for like the most hours uh, in Canada, mm-hmm. I think. Um, Cause he, Just loved it. Um, It was, I think if he could go back, I think he would want to be an RCMP officer because it just provided him with so much fulfillment knowing um, we were living in Vernon at the time and uh, uh, knowing that he was giving back to his community, um, it, it gave him so much pride to do that work.
1: You know, policing is such an adventure. I think it wouldn't matter if you're in the RCMP or municipal force or, or whatever, but I mean, going to people's houses and maybe this sounds creepy, but going to people's houses and then getting a look inside different lives
2: yeah.
1: is so interesting and so informative. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember I was helping on a homicide investigation um, and I had to go and do view questionnaires at an entire apartment and the homicide took place between Christmas and New Year's. And so when I was going door to door to, do canvassing with the team I was on I got to see in like you know like 350 different apartment units and go inside Mm. and it was mostly low-income housing as well and you know here I was with my own children you know falling on the ground crying because their lollipop was the wrong color Mm. Uh, versus going into someone's house it was like a large family very small um Mm. accommodations very meager you know um you know belongings and stuff so, and just you know but still happy and thriving as families and it just made me really recognize you know that the struggles that people go through and you know how you know i'm very fortunate um as a person and i you know not that i come from a rich background or anything but you know you mm-hmm. think you're not rich you think oh i'm not rich and then you go to someone's house who's actually living in poverty yeah. and see the challenges that they have and how difficult it is for people to climb out of um poverty situations particularly like a lot of the people that I was interviewing were newcomers where maybe only one person family can even work Mm -hmm. um and you know that's actually been something that's really informed me I think in the career that I do now and I'm grateful that I had that experience going into this job Mm
2: -hmm.
1: it changed my perspective on a lot of things
0: well I was going to say you you went from being in a position uh where you were really kind of responding to um crises because very typically people are contacting the police because there's a crisis and they need the police to respond to being in a position now where you're looking at um for lack of a better word, reshaping how people can hopefully get support so they don't go into crisis, so they don't need to have the police uh, respond. What's that like for you being uh, and and you you say that the previous experience was illustrated for you. I I wonder if you go a little deeper into that for us. So what's it like being in that place where you were kind of doing the response role where now you're actually doing the policy uh, uh, side of things?
1: Well, so you've actually kind of hit right on the reason why I went into this job or I tried to, you know, ran so that I would have an opportunity hopefully to get into this position um, is because of when I spent time on the street, whether it was in the Northwest Territories or, or when I was in Langley as Langley or or here in Surrey. Um, and I would see people with uh, complex mental health issues, addictions issues, you know, how much of an impact on public safety, and wellness, uh, poverty, a lack of access to good housing and education, like how much of an impact on, you know, safety, for example, those things have, you know, and I really mid pandemic, you know, there was such a big review and a call about policing and how police should not be attending mental health issues. You know, I was still Mm. a police officer at the time
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and um, police agree. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And that's why it's like, you know, we need to be doing more upstream you know before the crisis hits right and and this is even with the lower mainland gang conflict for example um people often saying well what are police doing to stop these gangs but the reality being that um gangs are funded by drug trafficking and it is only by reducing the demand for drugs that we will see you know a lessening of the strength of gangs in british columbia and so having that sort of background and seeing from the perspective of a police officer at the time, um, and feeling that frustration of like, you know, yes, police are not equipped to deal, they do their very best with the tools they have, but they are not um, psychiatric nurses, they are not um, psychiatrists. Um, they're not they want, social workers. They're not social workers, they yeah. want to keep safe, and there is a role for the police, don't get me wrong, like absolutely. there are some dangerous situations where police are absolutely required. Um, but, you know, I was like, you know, if I this is, I never thought I would be an MLA, first of all, but back in the day, I'd be sitting in my police car, maybe chatting window to window with another officer. And we'd always just be shooting the, you know what, and saying, you know, if I could be in charge, what I would do is X, Y, Z, right. And so over time, those sort of ideas, it's like, you know, if I could make a difference in the mental health act, this is what I would do. If I would make changes, you know, like even for Safety in British Columbia right now, my biggest, even, you know, even as a retired police officer, I'm not calling for more police. Mm-hmm. I want to see the police we have, you know, I want to see their vacancies filled, of course, so that of they course. aren't running short. And I want to see them receiving the funding that they um, require, of course. But in order for us to really reduce crime, street disorder, and to ensure that British Columbia is safe, We really need to address the social determinants of health, Mm -hmm. right, which is poverty. We need to um, provide housing. We need to make sure that people are having access to health care, to education. And it's because we're not doing a good job in this province right now of addressing those core issues. The evidence is everywhere. Mm -hmm. We see um, a rise in street disorder. We see a rise in violent behaviors. Um, and it doesn't mean that adding more police on the top will make those issues go away. Mm-hmm. Police are awesome. Um, I'm a big fan. Um, but it is it, to add more police on the top of that is to, like, add a Band-Aid on a cancer. Mm-hmm. You need to treat the cancer. You need to treat the underlying illness. And so, I mean, and in, in to do that, you know, we really need to invest in making sure that, you know, appropriate housing with appropriate supports, right person, right supports, making sure that um, we're doing everything we can to address poverty Um, and poverty doesn't mean like jobless and homeless poverty is so many things. There's a lot of hidden poverty in BC for Mm -hmm. every person you see on the street. There's probably hundreds of people living on couches, um, Mm -hmm. living in dangerous situations because they cannot escape from them. um, Living in vehicles, you know, living on the edge of being evicted at any time Um, or skipping meals, you know, living in secure housing, but having to choose between making sure the housing is secure and, and eating regular meals. So we need to do more to address that. Our province will then as a result become safer and, and I think healthier.
0: You're, you're echoing, I had uh, Dr. Julian Summers on last week, um, and you're, you're echoing so much of what, what he's saying from his, professional uh, experiential background about the ways that BC has been approaching certainly the specifically the addictions uh, crisis um, and really taking um, I guess not taking lessons from where there have been uh, practical successful experiences whether we're looking at Portugal or Switzerland um, and instead going a route that I think over the last five some odd years has just proven not to work uh, and it's not working over and over and over again. And we're, we're seeing now um, uh, the, 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 the the death toll from the overdose crisis is going to hit another record next year uh, or, or from this year uh, when we get the numbers next year. I mean, I, I can't imagine that this is something that you're proud of as as a legislator or that our government should be proud of and yet it doesn't seem that we're course correcting at all it, what it seems to me and and i i like your your thoughts on this as a communications professional is that there's a lot of efforts to public relations this problem away uh instead of actually trying to deal with the social determinants of health deal with the poverty deal with the issues and i would also say and i mentioned this to to Dr. Summers, living in Victoria, uh, I see all the time. I work downtown. I walk around downtown a lot here. Um, it feels like the government has given up and that just saying, you know what? We can't solve this problem. Let's just provide all of these drugs for free and just give them to folks. And, and, and just we, we can't solve it, so we're not going to try. And, and I'm being a bit uh, uh, perhaps hyperbolic with it, but to me, that's how it feels. And I know I'm not alone. So, I mean, I've asked kind of several questions I've layered in there, but I just love your response to that.
1: Well, I feel frustrated and sad. And you asked, you know, I think you said, I can't feel good about that. And, you know, I'm in the opposition. And so my job is to try to advocate and fight Mm -hmm. for improvement to services and to critique, you know, pathways the government's currently taking. Mm Um. On Sunday, I actually was invited to go to a celebration of life for a victim of the addictions crisis Mm. by the mother of um, a young person in their early 20s who just died only a few weeks ago. And I didn't know the boy and I only knew his mom um, through our interactions and I was originally gotten in touch with her because she was corresponding with the minister and had carbon copied me and so I reached out but you know. I, even though I did not know this young man, I can say very sincerely that when I went there, his baby book was laying out on the table. All his young friends in their twenties were there. They were playing a video of his childhood, and all his. It was just, you know, it breaks your heart. Yeah, but you know what is? It's important for me to get my heart broken, and I'll tell mm. you because the pain needs to be understood by people that are making the decisions. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, we cannot allow ourselves to be detached and think about the statistics. It's seven people a day dying, but for this family, whose son, this was, this was, this is the only person, you know what I mean? This was their loved one. And when I was in the room and I saw how many other people were there, And young people, like the ripple effects that every single death has, it's not just seven people a day that lose their lives. It is seven networks of families, friends, and, you know, extended, you know, people within BC Mm -hmm. that get affected every single day and the trauma that goes along with that. And then any subsequent mental health or addiction services needed for those affected people. And so I, you know, I am so grateful when people reach out and include me and they're not forcing me to see their pain. They're allowing me to participate in their grieving and in their process and to understand that I also do my best to find out how that overdose ended up happening so that we can find out. Like in this case, actually, this person died of um, diverted safe supply. Ugh. They died of a methadone overdose. It was not their methadone. It was diverted from another person and then they overdosed on it. So knowing that gives me pathways to look into to investigate And I guess that's a crossover from my old job. When I see something, I like to investigate, and then I like to see if there are recommendations in my mind. Where how could this have? How could we have changed this trajectory to protect these you know vulnerable people? So for me, one of the things that's really, really, I guess upsetting, is that I do not see the current government working as though we're in an emergency.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: You know. you asked me earlier about, you know, my career path that I mentioned as in the military and I worked in like the logistics branch was my branch. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I was the minister right now, and I don't care if they listen to this and copy this exactly do this, this is, I would be working as though I was in a, a natural disaster. You know, you mm-hmm. saw the teams boom during the flooding. Remember mm-hmm. the the, the catastrophic events that we had in the valley
2: that's right when, yeah you
1: know or that atmospheric
0: looked, river came through and washed the atmospheric out bridges river and, and, we had yeah. all the
1: you know on the highways boom we've built them yeah. incredible work incredible work to build back the cocahalla mm-hmm. in months mm-hmm. you know um but we have seven people a day dying and there was uh more than just over a week ago an announcement again Uh, A re-announcement by David Eby and Jennifer Whiteside about uh, the road to recovery at St. Paul's hospital, which is a good program. I'm not here to, to slag, you know, that concept of that program, but what I will say is that I find it disgusting that the announcement said that it wouldn't be done being built for another almost 18 months, Mm -hmm. the program rollout. So how many people between now and, and, and even a year from now will have passed away yeah, at the rate of seven people a day in British Columbia, you know, yeah. um, it's far too small of a, of a rollout. It's taking far too long. Um, when we were in COVID, um, think about it. We had, you know, it's like boom overnight. A massive, you know, Quonset hut would be mm-hmm. set up tent mm-hmm. with you could like drive in and get your testing kits, and you mm-hmm. could. Go and get, you know, they had vaccine clinics set up overnight with firefighters helping administer them. And it was like a little army. Yeah. We
0: showed that during COVID, we could pivot government to to act. Yeah.
1: Oh, absolutely. And, you know, to save lives and to protect um, people, absolutely. Like these are the things that we need to do. But we've been in uh, a public health emergency for the opioid crisis now for like seven, almost eight years. Yep. And I haven't even seen, any glimmer of similarity between responses. And I'm like very, very, I'm disgusted actually. It's so frustrating and disgusting. Um, Particularly when there are things that we could actually be doing. Like I last week asked for, um, you know an immediate implementation of, of virtual opioid dependency program.
0: That's right, you uh, did. Yeah, I, re- I remember <laughs> reading that press release. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and, and one of the things is in my um, health authority where I live, uh a significant number, in fact, the greatest number of people who are uh, losing their life to overdose is, are people within their own homes
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, who may
1: be using alone. Um, and, and the same group who feels the shame and may be using alone probably is not as likely also to go to a doctor's office or a walk-in clinic. And we know like one in five people still don't have a doctor. Yep. So virtual opioid access to a an online addictions clinic. So we're not talking about just even getting any doctor to walk in isn't necessarily going to be a specialist, mm-hmm. but having a virtual opioid dependency program where a person can actually get treatment medications um, same day on demand anywhere in British Columbia is, in my opinion, something that especially can address those individuals who are inside their home right now and people don't even know that they're using drugs and they're at risk right now of dying. Mm-hmm. We need to make sure that people can discreetly get these specialized services.
0: It... Um... It sounds like there's solutions like there's there's <laughs> there's things that we can be doing right now.
1: In and my so, opinion, yes. In my opinion, so, yes.
0: Why why aren't we doing them?
1: Well, I'm not in government. If I had the power, <laughs> listen, Ryan, I would there are things that I would be ready to go today and things that um and and they're not like wild and crazy things, you know, mm-hmm. they are things that I, I feel could be, um, effective. I sort of have a new sort of like little catchphrase, I guess. I, I like to say that it doesn't have to be perfect to be effective, right? right? You don't have to wait for an entire hospital to be built to give someone first aid, right? Mm-hmm. We can, we can roll things out. Like look at COVID. Like I said, the Quonset hot tents with mm-hmm. people driving through and mm-hmm. it wasn't perfect. -hmm. It was effective. It was so effective. So, if we could think more along the lines of look, you don't have to wait for an entire new foundry to be set up to make sure that there are services available, like, you know, make a bookmobile for addictions clinic. You know, Mm -hmm. we have, you know, these mammogram mobiles. Mm -hmm. So, why Mm -hmm. not have an addiction center treatment? ability to just drive over to places where people are who need services and help triage them and help reach out. And, you know, we need more um, things that could be done in the immediacy to, to meet people where they're at. But for God's sake, don't leave them where they're at. Help lift them to the next level and let's, let's help people. And, you know, it's really a question for the government um, why it is that they're not um, helping or allowing the opposition and, and other parties to participate and to why they're not taking up some of the solutions that are being offered. You know, the only thing I can think of is that it's pure politics. But, um, you know, I've, in any conversation that I've had, even recently I had a conversation with the Minister for Mental Health and Addictions, and I said I'd be willing to get together to talk about um, what I, you know, envisioned for a virtual opioid dependency program, but she shot me down. <laughs> so That's just so it's not surprising, that- but... I, mean... I can't
0: I can't imagine like what why are we letting politics get in the way of solutions that can make people's uh, save people's lives but also divert people from uh, continuing down a road of addiction and pain and unfortunately sometimes eventually death uh, and and getting just getting well getting better it seems like we're okay And I mean we in general we're okay with status quo right now like I'm not okay with status quo. Well,
1: I mean, politics and belief systems uh, do have a role. So, you know, as much as we say we shouldn't politicize, you know, there, we represent people with certain points of view, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, and there are things that between the opposition and the government, we don't necessarily see eye to eye on. Uh, We want to see more emphasis on treatment and recovery. Mm -hmm. Um, And we would like to see more safeguards going into any kind of pharmaceutical alternatives to illicit drugs. We want to make sure that um, prevention and education are much uh, stronger. You know, so we're going to not necessarily agree on everything. But I think that the things that we can agree on, which is that we need to act faster, Mm -hmm. um, it's disappointing then on the things that we do agree on not to see more collaboration because um i think that it would go a long way um to helping you know you you can't always agree on every thing and we do represent the views of of different people and you know you you hear sometimes public officials, so non-elected people working in government in in high ranking roles within this realm talk about oh things got politicized and so they didn't their Recommendations, for example, may not have been accepted, but when you are elected, you are elected to represent the, you know, opinion and will and beliefs of the people who have put you in your position. And so, you know, I have to represent those views. So if I'm representing a group of people within British Columbia whose belief is that we need to be much stronger on prevention, recovery, and treatment, I need to stick with those principles, mm-hmm. not to evolve, not to where it would be detrimental, mm-hmm. but you know there is a role for us um, voicing the opinion of the people that we serve. They also have a right and a role in voicing what their priorities are in terms of um, what their wishes are for us to deal with this crisis, but I've never heard anyone <laughs> Regardless of what party they support, saying that that we're doing a good job, and I've never heard anyone say "slow down, you're moving too fast to help people." They're saying "hurry up, help people." What are you guys doing? So I
0: act like this is the crisis it actually is. Yeah, yeah. Um, on on that, I I want to hit on on a, a couple more. It's amazing how quickly time goes. Um, <laughs> I want to hit on a couple more issues. So um, one of them uh, is literally eight months after your election and, and you are clearly someone who who likes to get to work. Um, you brought a amendment to the Mental Health Act into the legislature um, to specifically focus on suicide prevention. And this was uh, particularly poignant for me. I'm a suicide survivor. And so when people talk about this issue, um, if at all, because it's not it's not something that's talked about, we're we're still so stigmatized to talk about about suicide. Um, I was really, really um, proud. And I felt seen and heard when you brought this up, because I I don't think I've ever seen the government um, uh, bring up this issue. So can you explain a little bit why you brought this amendment forward in March, uh, what it was intended to do and how the government responded to it?
1: Yeah, so again, this one has some crossover into my policing career. Um, I actually uh, was on scene for a suicide of an individual on a roadway when I was working for Langley RCMP, and that really impacted me um, and, you know, other suicides that I had dealt with in my policing career and and just seeing that often in probably almost all these cases, um, people had been to hospitals multiple times. And had been sometimes taken there even by the police and then discharged only to then later um, self-harm or within mm-hmm. a very short period of time die by suicide. And mm-hmm. it's something that I have always wanted to try to um, fix, you know, that that whole, basically that gap in our care. And I think one of the ways in which, um, you know, I've heard from family members and, and people impacted by suicide and even people who um, had suicidal ideations and were saved and moved forward with their lives as a result of being able to receive care, that one of the most important aspects of that is having that collateral information sharing. Mm -hmm. So this particular private members um, bill only deals with people being apprehended under the mental health act section 28. So emergencies. So that's people Mm -hmm. who come in with the police. Mm -hmm. Um, And what it would provide is that it would stipulate that The assessing physician or nurse practitioner must um, contact sort of a third party, a close relative, or in the case of people that don't have a close relative, if they were staying at a shelter, someone who can provide like a little bit of collateral information so that a doctor or nurse practitioner has a little bit more information on someone maybe they just met like five minutes ago, Mm -hmm. you know, um, because you know, a lot of people who have been in situations where they've been engaged with the Mental Health Act, particularly apprehended by police, often know how to say or behave in order to not be to be um, certified, mm-hmm. you know, and that's something that we've heard over and over as well. Um, so the families that actually helped support me in my private members, Bill, were um, Todd uh, Todd Mars' family. He's the young man that uh, died by suicide on the police call that I was at. 14 years ago. And then the sister and brother-in-law of Nicole Channa, a uh, VPD officer who um, took her own life um, after being discharged from an emergency room. And so, you know, they, they had felt that, you know, if at the time if physicians had spoken to family members, they would have had a better idea. And perhaps there's no guarantee, but perhaps may have certified their loved ones. Mm-hmm. Um, you know and so to me it's been really important it's really brought up a lot of new conversations and willingness of of actually organizations to come forward um mostly supportive you know some not necessarily in support of this idea but it it's really been great dialogue and great conversations and then finding out what are people's concerns if we would make this amendment and is there ways that we can work with people's concerns to make sure that both um, the need for collateral information sharing in emergency situations, and the right, you know, to make sure that people's, um, you know, privacy is is protected. We have to be able to to do both those things. And and you know, like some of the families then that after my private members um, bill had reached out to me, um, I have I'm actually starting to work on a new amendment for a different section of the um, Mental Health Act. And it, it also has to do with um, collateral information sharing, but it's under Section 34 of the Mental Health Act. And it's about when people get notified um, if their loved one is discharged from being held um, certified in a, in a hospital. So most of the okay. things are formed by like experience dealing with these emergencies. And then also by families who have thankfully reached out to me to, to guide me in where they think that, change would have either made a difference to save their loved one or will help improve the care for others.
0: So you're really having deep conversations in community about um, this stuff in your role as the shadow minister for mental health and addictions and and that's going a long way to inform some of these these things that you're uh, that you're you're bringing into the house you're trying to amend legislation to 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 help improve the lives of British Columbians so it's it's been 8 or uh, 8 or 9 months since you introduced this what was the government's response?
1: Well, they didn't call it for debate. Mm. So um, which is not surprising. This they don't often call another party's um private member's bills for debate, but you know, it is um it's disappointing because you know it would be great to be able to have that debate and then see something that could be so life-changing um adopted into the Mental Health Act. I think um, you know. <laughs> if you know should we be lucky enough to form the next government this is legislation that i'll pursue if i was you know um the minister so it -hmm. doesn't mean it's gone forever it stays Mm -hmm. always there with the ability to to go for debate um regardless of whether the government calls it or not and can be brought up even in in the next government um i'm not going to stop advocating you know I, i think it's important that we take a look at certain legislation and, and, you know, all of the things that I do, to be honest, from my two minute statements to my, um, you know, things that I talk about in debate, these are all things that are informed by constituents. And then from people across BC that write me and, and call my office and, and have input, especially if I have a meeting with someone and they've got this lived experience with other mental health or addictions, or I'm also the education critic. So I hear a lot from parents. Mm. And so when I'm, debating. These are actually real stories from, from people, um, you know, based on their lived experience, what's happening to them right now in their life here in BC. And, um, it's really, really cool to be able to, you know, hear from someone, maybe a parent of a child that's, you know, died of an overdose and then go into the BC legislature on the floor in a debate and be able to, to really get on the record, this experience, this real life happening um in our province and and talk about that issue in the real context of of a, a, an actual British Columbian that's been impacted by what's happening. Uh,
0: I, I want to ask about mental health uh, more uh, I don't know if it's more generally or more specifically. Um I'll let you decide. <laughs> uh, you know it, we, in my opinion, um and and as someone who's survi- not only survived suicide but who has been, on a, a mental health journey for the last 17, 15, 16, 17 years. Um, we don't we don't deal with mental health well in in this province, not just in this province, in this country. Um, we don't treat it like uh, we would treat any other illness, like a broken arm or a broken leg or or any other kind of ailment. Uh, we treat it still very much like it, it's 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 alien. Um, as if it's the person's fault for having a mental health issue. And my you know, I, I can remember when I first moved to uh, the island, I lived in Sydney. Um, i had I had just come back from teaching overseas for four years. I was uh, experiencing some incredible intense anxiety, um, and uh, i I was not doing well, and I had just gotten a job as a constituency assistant. so it was coming into a hugely uh, uh, a new world. I went, I didn't have a doctor. So I went to a walk-in clinic and the doctor at the walk-in clinic prescribed lithium, like right there. I sat with him maybe for two minutes and just prescribed lithium. And I was like, what? (laughs) And even at that point, I was like, that you've, you've never met me. You don't know anything about my history and you're prescribing me with lithium. This, it just just feels so wrong. And that experience to me just highlighted the challenge with how we deal with mental health, not just in this province, but as a society at large, we, we take a very superficial look at people. Uh, we make very quick judgments and then we prescribe quote unquote prescribed, never suggested that I go to counseling or therapy or anything like that, just through a script at me, uh, not really through it at me, but you know what I mean? So, I mean, from your perspective, not only as the shadow minister, but going into an election, it, how can we and how do you think we can start actually dealing with mental health in this province? The same way we deal with physical health issues because they're they're both health issues that really do affect people and and yet they're they're divided into two completely totally different things. If someone's got a broken arm, you don't say, well, you know, you've got a broken arm, it's your fault. Go, go, you know, walk away and, you know, walk it off or just be happy. Right. Like how, how, how how do you see us dealing with that?
1: well, there's, you know, so many different parts to that. You know, I, I really, it's sort of like the same way I was talking earlier about dealing with um, the opioid crisis and safety by addressing the social determinants of health. You know, would people feel less anxious and less depressed if they were not stressed out about how they were going to survive in British Columbia um, mm-hmm. right now? And if mm-hmm. their housing was insecure or they were worried about that, they live paycheck to paycheck. I think that a lot of the pressures that people in BC are feeling right now with uh, housing, uh, healthcare, affordability You know, that's not helping our collective um, sense of mental health and wellness. So those, Mm -hmm. I mean, my priority obviously has to be addressing cost of living, but also quality of living in British Columbia. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So overall, that's very like overarching. But then within mental health care, you know, I sort of, there's this group that actually started on Facebook. It's called um, Pathetic Excuse for a System, PEZ. It's actually a group of people who have either had family members or themselves been in, involved in the mental health care system in British Columbia. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just been so wild, particularly to hear from people who have themselves been put in involuntary care um, and to hear their experiences that they had. And and I'm not saying, every you know, not everyone who has a mental health issue is ever going to need to be in involuntary care. That's not what it's about whatsoever, but the reason why i bring that up is that you know the this the culture that we have within our mental health system we need to do an overhaul of that and mm-hmm. it it also is related to stigma
2: mm-hmm.
1: um it's related to you know the services that are not actually easily available but there we need to also have a more holistic view of how we're dealing with mental health because you know for some people and you know you said we wouldn't tell someone to walk it off. But in some circumstances, there are people who would benefit from exercise mm-hmm. <laughs> who would benefit from a healthier diet, but you mm-hmm. can't, if you can't afford that, mm-hmm. you can't afford a rec pass, you can't afford healthy groceries because you're struggling financially mm-hmm. or you're housing insecure. You know, we are not then addressing the mental health of our province. Mm. So we have to stop, I guess the point is we have to stop looking at things in the siloed way and recognize mm-hmm. that all of the issues that we have with our mental health right now, with our collective mental health as a province, actually have a great deal of interconnectedness to every other ministry, you know, whether it's transportation, housing, you know, employment, uh, healthcare. BC, a lot of people are struggling mm-hmm. make sure that they have their social um, determinants of health addressed, that people are not struggling and living in poverty or or near poverty or at risk of becoming homeless. And then within our healthcare system, when we're dealing with mental health, I think that there needs to be a cultural shift, uh, more inclusion for um, you know, collateral information sharing, collaboration with um, near relatives who you know obviously, look, I'm gonna throw the caveat out there. Yes, I'm aware that some people may not want that, no mm-hmm. one's going to be forced to share their personal history with someone that is abusive to them or that they for whom they don't want a relationship that's not what it's about mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. But it's about
1: those circumstances where we have actually very supportive family who are essentially the primary caregivers for an adult right um, who's suffering from an illness we need to be able to help empower that relationship between healthcare and like these teams of families you know we we it's not just the one individual usually who is Struggling—it's a family surrounding that person who is trying to navigate this this health system, this mental health, and to help their loved one. And often they um, are shut out.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But the way that our healthcare system is so stressed right now, and that includes mental health and it includes addiction, because um, it's all healthcare.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, we rely heavily, heavily on families to help care for their loved ones. Think about it, you know, you have someone who's got an operation and they can't be home alone. They discharge them to a relative, you know, to help them. Or they say, oh, can you go and check in on your grandma like twice a day? We're relying on people within our province to help supplement care, which is appropriate, you know, and culturally we, you know, it's great for us to care for our family members. So let's empower that relationship instead of always throwing up those roadblocks, because every family that I've met with just wants to help. They just want to support the loved one. They want to be involved in finding out how can they best, you know, if a person's discharged, for example, from a hospital, you know, if they were there involuntarily under the Mental Health Act, they want to know when that person is out so that they can be there maybe to give them a ride, make sure that they have their fridges full of food, you know, be there to to help be that public, you know, that safety um, wraparound care that the person needs when they're vulnerable when they get out. Because most people are released from the hospital, they're not cured from that mental health issue. No. They yeah. may be stabilized,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but very few times is you know you're not going to be cured of, of your schizophrenia. You yeah. know you may be stabilized on medication, but the reality is is that for most people, even when they're discharged, they still need ongoing um, services and wraparound care. We want to empower families to be part of that.
0: Do you think? that there needs to be a look at maybe rolling mental health care into the public uh, health care system. And, and I ask that because you do hear people talking about that. But at the same time, I kind of think we can barely manage our publicly funded health care system as it is. <laughs> and then we want to roll. And again, I'm not saying it's not a good idea, but we're not in a place right now where you know we've got a million Canadians who don't have a family doctor. And yeah, but- if we start rolling mental health care into that, Holy crap, it's like the system will, it's already imploding. It will just yeah, but family it doctors don't
1: have to do all the mental health. So even if we let's say we did. So I'm a person who has benefited because I'm a veteran mm-hmm. from the RTP and the military. So all of my I'm I'm so lucky and I recognize this and why I'm a huge advocate for free treatment and mental health and, and all that is mm-hmm. because it was free for me. Yeah, right. It was free for me and will be free till I'm dead. You know, I'm blessed, I'm lucky if it wasn't for, um, the access to services and not having to pay, um, you know, I I think I wouldn't be in the same place I am today. And I want that same benefit Mm -hmm. for everybody. I would love to provide that for everybody. You know, there's, it shouldn't be exclusive. I think if you need help and we should be taking care of people. So don't forget, even if it did get rolled into healthcare, family doctors are not necessarily the ones that will suddenly be burdened with having to do all this work Right there are registered psychologists and there are clinical counselors and there are other people because not everybody's going to need a psychiatrist right Right. not everybody is going to need even a psychologist right there can be other you know some people it's just like treatment um for addiction some people go to aa and that's enough some people need in you know bed-based treatment other people you know are fine with going to a counselor Hmm. um dealing privately with, with their addictions issues, you know, so it's going to not be, it's not one size fits all, you know what I mean? Like it's.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So it really like making it a holistic, wonder, a, holistic yeah. a
1: holistic. Yeah. But you know, yeah. and bringing, bringing mental health services, um, you know, closer aligned with our healthcare, you know, it is healthcare.
0: It is. Yeah. Mental health is health. It's
1: addiction is considered yeah. to be a, a mental health issue. And if an addiction is a health problem, Uh, They're all health problems. Yeah. But to make sure that, you know, people have to understand too, that, you know, um, not, you know, when we talk about even mental health, I often talk about, for example, the mental health act, but these Mm -hmm. are for extreme cases or for emergency. The average person needs access to see if they can get into a counselor, Mm -hmm. talk to most, um, insurance plans won't, um, cover unless the person the counselor has a certain level of education yeah you know,
0: designation we, like a clinical counselor or a clinical yeah, psychologist and so, like, or something exactly
1: you know. right and so like you know looking maybe at ways of shifting that so that you know greater broader definitions of, of what could be helpful
2: hmm.
1: um because it's like what well, we you know going back now full picture to what i said about being in policing and you know police not wanting to be at the end of the waterfall with the gushing down of the the, the big crisis way upstream if the person had seen even uh, a counselor mm-hmm. maybe would have averted the emergency down the road right and so yeah. even if we start covering the cost of for example you know clinical counselors or even you know counseling or peer therapy or peer-to-peer supported programs
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, it's it costs money but I can guarantee you it costs less money than waiting for the police to apprehend someone and
0: absolutely then
1: have, forbid someone get hurt um and so you know it's it's an investment pay now or pay later pay now pay actually significantly less than when you pay later and also the quality of life for british Columbians, man like i don't like getting too political weedy because the whole thing is is that you know i'm here because i just want people to have their best life you know and um when i was policing there were so many times i saw people that were not having an opportunity to live their best life they were suffering and so I just you know I'm here every day because I just want to help improve everybody's life.
0: I want to just while we're before we wrap up one final question. We're going into an election next year, um, and uh, you've you've been in MLA for I think uh, we're going on a year now. It's um, one year. One year. <laughs> um, and anyone who's kind of been looking at the the news about about politics will see that there there seems to be a a insurgent move by uh, if someone can call that by the conservative party of bc a former former colleague of yours um from, two former colleagues of yours actually um, well, and there only was one uh, was
1: my former colleague one by oh, himself oh had had
0: john not well, I elected, I wasn't elected. Oh, okay, yeah yeah there yet um, and thank you for clarifying <laughs> that it's always hard to keep track of these things like yeah that. no no um and and we had an angus reed poll that came out i think yesterday or today showing that the conservatives bc conservatives are in second place at 25% bc united is that 20%? Is that a, a trend that you think is going to sustain itself? How are you guys looking at um, approaching that? Because it, you know, it looks like they're taking a little bit of shine from the federal conservatives and Pierre Polyev and and, and all that. So do you have a, a strategy or a plan? Or is it just really being who you are and talking to your constituents and, and British Columbians and saying, look, this is the plan, this is what we need to do. And, and we're kind of the ones with the path to to get us there. Yes. Okay.
1: <laughs>
2: yeah. So
1: no. yeah, I you know, I am working extremely hard. There's things that I want to achieve and conversations that I want to have. Even if the legislation for example that I brought forward and and that I plan to bring forward in the spring, Even if those things do not get passed, my goal is that before the next election, I want to make sure and work as hard as I can to have as many and advocate for as many people as I can, because you do not know what the future will hold. Mm -hmm. But I want to make hay while the sun shines and do my absolute best to, you know, I had certain objectives and I want to make sure I get those objectives complete. Um, That being said, you know, I will, I work hard every day to make sure that I'm listening to even voices of dissent
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, within my riding to make sure that their opinions are heard and also um, considered I'm doing my best to you know hopefully the people that um you know elected me last time hopefully my riding is pleased with the work that I'm doing and in my constituency and I'll keep working as hard as I can um, to earn their trust and and to hopefully win their support and and maintain my seat in the legislature but you know it's I don't think that there's anyone who can have a crystal ball. Does mm-hmm. it worry, concern me? It does because you know there's so much more that I think that we can do. And I, I am proud of the things that our party stands for, particularly with the public safety and addictions and mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm gonna work as hard as I can to make sure that people, um, you know, we can win as many seats as possible and hopefully form the next government. But I think it would be a mistake to say that polls are not concerning. I think, you know, um, it's hard to know, like, I'm not sure if you've ever been called by someone polling, um, you know, they're generally pretty small sample sizes, mm-hmm. and I'm not trying to say that they don't matter. They do matter. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, well, but... anyone who
0: looks at the 2013 election will know that polls are not always right.
1: <laughs> they're, not always, they're not always right. But, you know, I think that you don't want to make the mistake of being arrogant either and saying like, they don't matter. I True. think that, you know, I perhaps where I need to do a better job is to make sure that people do know um, what our policies are. And, mm. you know, where can I do myself work harder to make sure that, you know, people have an idea of what they would be voting for if they vote in um, BC United as a government. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I'm just really working hard. And I know that all the other MLAs that I work with are and candidates that are now announced um, are working hard, too, just to continue doing what we can you know i don't my job is not to worry about the bc conservatives and my job is not to um you know try and formulate every plan about how i'm supposed to defeat them because truly my job right now i'm being paid by the public Mm -hmm. to represent their interests and to to try to um fight for what i think you know or what they think is right Um, and what is not working in BC. And so I'm really focused on that. And I hope that um, the community members that I represent, I hope that they're happy with my representation and, and choose to continue allowing me to do that.
0: Well, Eleanor, I've I've been uh, I've been in politics for for a long time working inside and, and, and outside of the system. And I tell you, I've I've worked with a lot of politicians and seen a lot of them work. I've been immensely impressed uh, and I'm not just blowing smoke. Uh, I'm being quite honest. Uh, you come at this work with, with a, a genuine determination, uh, a focus to do good. I, I don't think I've ever seen you uh, let partisan politics get in the way of what you're there to do, which, and, you know, if who's listened to this podcast interview can clearly see it's to do what's best for your constituents and British Columbians at large. So I sincerely hope that we get the honor of of having you as one of our MLAs in the province of BC for for many more years to come because I think we need you there.
1: Oh thank you and you know what it's been such a, a like an honor and I feel so so many times I can tell you that there's not a day that goes by when I'm in the public it doesn't even matter if I'm in my constit or not people will stop me even when I have disgusting sweatpants no makeup <laughs> you know picking up some like weird you know products at the store or whatever (laughs) they will still stop me and they just say thanks for representing you know thank you for being our person in Victoria and that's just like
0: that's a good feeling
1: it is and it makes me so proud I think there is no greater feeling than than knowing that you have a chance to make things better for people and so yes I, I do hope that I get that chance again and you know Um, I'll be working hard to make sure that that happens.
0: Emily Eleanor Sterko from Surrey South, uh, BC United, MLA. thank you for joining me for this podcast. And I hope that we can connect in the new year, although I know in the new year, you'll be very, very busy. Uh, But (laughs) uh, if we've got time, I'd love to connect with you. But in the meantime, best of the holiday season to you and your family and uh, be safe and uh, enjoy your New Year's festivities.
1: Okay, thanks. You too. Take care.
0: Thank you so much again for tuning in. I can't tell you how much it warms my heart having you here with me to listen to my musings, to hear my interviews with guests, and just to share this space. It means so much. It really does. And I really hope for 2024 for you. You have great things coming your way. Because you really do deserve great things. You absolutely do. And so I hope you have great things coming to you in 2024. And if you're starting off 2024 in a challenging place, as I know some of you are, that's okay. That's okay. It it will improve. It will get better. Hold on to the hope that things will get better, that things will Improve because it will. It might not feel like it right now. It might not seem like it right now, but things will get better. They absolutely will. I know this. I have seen the very darkest side of existence, and I know that that can be overcome. So I hope that you have the best 2024 that you can possibly have. I cannot wait to see you again, to be here with you again in the new year. And I really look forward to bringing you more awesome interviews, commentary, and great things in the year to come. Happy new year.